I mean, I smelled a lot of stuff on the way here, which, you know, I think maybe it's kicking in a little bit. So we're going to get psychedelic is what you're saying? <laughs> well, I don't, we'll need that shirt. It's hard not to. This is Van Collar. Van Collar. We're at the West Coast. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Culler in the very first episode of 2020, Happy New Year, by the way, we return to the well of the most passionate conversational topic in this city, housing. But we're going to mix things up and examine Vancouver housing through a policy lens. So who better to join me today than the director of the UBC Center of Urban Economics and Real Estate at the Sauter School of Business? He obtained his BA in social studies at Harvard, his MPA, his Master of Public Administration from Princeton University, and his PhD in economics and urban studies from MIT. He is the man behind British Columbia's speculation tax. You'll find him in the comments section battling it out over housing policy. He is Dr. Tom Davidoff. Tom. How are you? Doing great. It's a real treat to be here. Thank you. It's my pleasure, and, and I'm very happy to see you. Last time I saw you, we were in better weather. We were outdoor <laughs> party for a certain attorney general. That's right. <laughs> Shout out to Vic Kana, by the way. I don't know if you know him personally, uh, but he's a guy that I consider a mentor, and he's been hounding me to have you on the show. So I appreciate him hounding me, and, and you were on my list already, and I appreciate you being here. All right. Well, Vic, uh, thanks for the uh, reference. <laughs> Hope all's great. Before we get into the policy stuff, you don't shy away from debating online. And I will see massive Twitter threads or threads on Vancouver is falling where you are very willing to engage in good faith. It would be easy for you to sort of sit in your ivory tower and, you know, not slug it out in the comment section. Why do you engage so much online? And, and I want to be clear, I'm coming from a position of admiration. I think it's cool that you do that. Well, let me give you a facetious answer and then a serious sure. answer. The facetious answer is uh, internet speed chess and uh, Twitter <laughs> debates uh, and duking it out on Vancouver's falling with uh, what you might call the NIMBY crowd. To me, those excite the exact same areas of the brain uh, that may be actually sitting and getting work done don't. Okay, so that's, sure. and, and, and that, that's the facetious but pro probably largely accurate answer. I think a better answer is you know, as an academic economist, there's sort of two paths you can follow. Mm -hmm. One is you try to be relevant to policy and to business. Yeah. And the other is you're proving deep theorems mathematically. And, you know, uh, the fraction of the profession that's really doing deep, deep mathematical stuff that doesn't have to be relevant to anything is pretty small. Mm -hmm. My own rule is my parents-in-law our realtors uh, in Oswego, Illinois. If you're ever looking for a home, Oswego Home Pro, sure, Terry and Barbara to know. Anderson. Thanks for the tip. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> they're great. They, they will do a great job for you. Mm -hmm. But uh, my rule is they're very smart people. They're not academic economists. Sure. Uh, but they think about housing. So if I can't explain what I'm researching to them in a way that they would find compelling, mm. my rule is work on a different project. Yeah, fair So enough. I, I think... 
you know, uh, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to get an education, be in a position where I can have something to say about policy. Why not duke it out? And, you know, uh, you know, sometimes obviously one wastes one's time with knuckleheads who refuse to listen and engage. And it's sure. just, you know, <laughs> you know, hammer, 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 hammer. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of smart cookies online, too. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've learned a lot of facts mm-hmm. uh, being here. If, if you don't mind me going on and on about this, you know, one of those is I think I've learned a lot about Vancouver housing prices. My view mm-hmm. uh, from the ivory tower, if you bike from Kitsilano to UBC and you do it in 2016, your impression is housing is all about overseas money because, you know, all the signs in Point Grey or in Mandarin, you see the black cars mm-hmm. pulling up and you're like, yeah. ah, that Chinese money, that's driving the market. Right. I think it was easy to miss. We actually had a growing economy and a booming millennial cohort and a lot mm-hmm. of immigration into Canada. Now, maybe some of that immigration was what you were seeing in Point Grey, but I think there's also different just people coming here, not with a ton of money, but mm-hmm. uh, a lot of money and a lot of human capital. And I think that's been an important factor in the market. And sure. I think it was easy for people to look out from the ivory tower on certain neighborhoods and say they knew what was going on. Right. I, I think we missed an important factor because we've taken the outside money out of the market and the bottom is still really strong. Sure. So, and, we'll, and we'll get yeah, into yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. We'll kind anyway, of unpack it piece by piece. Uh, uh, <laughs> very long way, winded way of saying, I think getting your hands dirty is great uh, when, you're, when you're at risk of not doing so in the ivory tower. Now, it is largely accepted that we are in a housing unaffordability crisis. And when we use that word crisis, whether it's housing or opioids or climate, are we effectively talking about a failed policy framework? Because even in the case of like a natural disaster, you know, we can call things a crisis when the relief or the response is insufficient or inadequate. So I feel like on a societal level, all crises are basically reflections of inadequate preparedness or inadequate institutional response. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah. Well, you know, Larry Summers, uh, a long time ago, prepping for a class, a fellow professor of mine Mm -hmm. pointed to something nice he had said, which is, you don't want to judge decisions ex post, right? You might get something wrong because you didn't know what was going to happen. Okay. So Mm -hmm. going into a policy choice, did you make what seemed like the right decision given the facts you had available to you? Mm -hmm. Now, if you talk about climate change, we thought growth is great. It lifts people out of poverty, right? I mean, post-war America, where I come from, Canada, you know, I mean, what a miracle. So many people yeah. going, for, you know, who would have been miserable in the working class got to lead great middle-class lives, mm-hmm. you know, producing the houses and the highways and the cars that have created the worst god-awful uh, mess right. imaginable in terms of climate. So did the people who enabled that do something terrible and sinful? I don't know what they knew. Right. Well, we're putting aside intention. And even if there were good intentions, the policy itself was a failure. Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. And now let's look at housing in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And to me, and we'll get into this, I think there's two big policies in need of change, which Mm -hmm. are we have a tax system that invites problems and we have zoning that maybe, probably not, but maybe made sense in a sort of small, pretty town, mostly uh, extraction industry type thing, Mm -hmm. but just in a global city uh, that is increasingly going to be a haven for talented and affluent people just doesn't work for affordability. So I think we made policy choices in the past you know, maybe they were a good idea, but clearly in uh, 2019, we've got to reevaluate uh, what we've been doing. So let's get into that. What were the failed or inadequate 
public policies on the different levels of government. And let's look at municipal government, provincial government, and federal government that you think caused or contributed to the housing unaffordability crisis. I mean, you've, you've sort of touched on two already, but let's get into it each layer of government. Sure. So let's do provincial and municipal, and we can talk about federal later, because I think that's where most of the action is here that's, sure. that's manageable. Sure. And we have the wrong mix of property and income taxes. Suppose you're somebody who doesn't yet own a home. You're working for a living. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're successful, the last dollar you make is taxed at 50%. Mm -hmm. You know, If you're low income, you don't actually pay a lot, but you do pay significant sales taxes. Sure. Uh, so we have a fairly heavy tax burden. We say, you know, you earn money, you spend money, you sell stuff, we're going to hit you with taxes. Mm -hmm. Where is the light tax burden? It's on owning property. Mm. You know, for every dollar of property you own, it might spit out, uh, you know, for every, well, I'd say for every dollar of rent your property spits out as a landlord uh, or as a uh, owner-occupier saving rent by owning a place, mm -hmm. I think the tax rate's something south of 15% if you think about property taxes as a fraction of rent as opposed to property value, so you can sort okay. of compare across markets. And that's low for Canada. Now, we should be high. In a market where it's so hard to build new homes, there's no bad thing that happens to the economy with a property tax. All you're doing mm -hmm. is taking money uh, from people who own property and giving it to the government. Well, the government has to take money from people. What you want to do are find sources of tax revenue that don't screw up people's choices. Yeah. And if people uh, want, are desperate to build more homes and they can't, uh, property tax doesn't really do any harm to the economy. So mm -hmm. if you're a working person, your landlord pays property tax, it doesn't affect your rent. Uh, because uh, rent is really going to be set by consumers' willingness to pay. So sure. a working person, uh, if you shift tax burden off of them onto the property owners, uh, the people looking for housing are better off. Of course, the existing property owners are worse off, and you have to manage that with taxes, and we can get into that. But just as a matter of economic efficiency, we should be a really dynamic economy with low income in sales taxes at the provincial level mm -hmm. and fund most of our expenditures through property taxes. And for gosh knows which historical reasons, we do the exact opposite. Okay. So you attribute low property taxes to fueling the unaffordability crisis. Well, of course, it, one make, it makes people want to buy homes. Sure. Right, if you take the tax burden off, so it raises prices and puts the tax burden on people uh, working and, and selling things for a living. And to the extent, and I think we did have this problem, uh, people want to buy property here purely for investment purposes. Mm -hmm. low, property uh, low property tax, low dividend, high capital gains mm -hmm. is a dream for somebody whose goal, say, is to uh, invest money in an asset that's not visible to a kleptocratic ruler in their home country. Okay. So, you know, on the other hand, you raise property taxes, you're going to make it very unattractive uh, to park cash here in Vancouver. So to the extent we believe outside money was driving things, mm -hmm. and, you know, I think that the extent to which that was true is up in the air, but to the extent we thought that was a problem, obviously shifting the tax burden away from working here and towards buying property mm -hmm. would have been very helpful. It would have made that trade unattractive. You've identified two things here. Are yeah. those the two main drivers well, so that's of probably the under... The other okay. thing we haven't talked about is zoning. You look at the west side of Vancouver, I mean, a square foot of housing can easily cost a thousand dollars so uh, you cannot 
force people to consume 2,000 square foot homes, uh, which is the family home that's available in single family zones, which are about 70% of Vancouver. There's just no way to make that affordable. Okay, sure. You got to pile the capital onto the land. Mm-hmm. And yet the market's begging for it. You look at the homes that get redeveloped on the west side of Vancouver, mm-hmm. and that's really great land, and it's begging for capital to be mixed with it. And what that would normally mean if it was a free market is very tall buildings. Right. Uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but look at Sanaqua, whatever the uh, Squamish are doing mm-hmm. by Barard. They want to build 50 story towers. Well, you go a few blocks away to the single family zones, and they're piling on the capital, but they can't build tall buildings that are apartments. They got to put in the granite countertops and the giant windows and whatever sure. else you can to yeah. put as much money as you can into a small building. And that's a totally unaffordable product and a, just a giant waste of really good real estate. And when you don't house people uh, uh, on the land that's that's best for housing people, mm-hmm. you're going to run into affordability problems. So these two things seem to cover municipal policy. Yeah. Can we go to... F- provincial policy and look at the failures there? Changing the income and property tax mix would require coordination with the province. Okay, gotcha. Because the municipality controls property tax, some other fees, but Mm -hmm. income and sales taxes are at the provincial level. Okay. So the right choice would be to make the lower mainland and probably greater Victoria sort of special economic zones with, Hmm. say, no sales taxes, uh, but in exchange kicking up higher property taxes. Hmm. Uh, But to make that trade, to make it revenue neutral, you need the province to play along with the municipalities. What about the federal government? Mm. Because I feel like under Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, Finance Minister Paul Martin's 1993 budget, where they canceled all new spending on social housing. I feel like that was a turning point for Vancouver. And now, in terms of housing and affordability in the city, we're basically paying compounded interest from that federal decision because we've taken out the construction of social housing and non-market housing. Yes. You know, uh, I come from the states, but it's the same story there. The federal mm-hmm. government really pulled out of uh, public housing a bit earlier in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, but here as well, after having played a large role throughout uh, the post-war era. Uh, you have other things, too. You know, uh, low interest rates sure. make single-family home ownership more attractive and owning a rental building less attractive for tax purposes, mm-hmm. since landlords get large interest uh, deductions, whereas homeowners in the states get less and none here in Canada. So it's not just the federal role. Okay. Uh, but it has been smaller. Now, what's interesting is, I mean, imagine in 2009, if instead of highways to get us out of a recession, uh, the feds had gotten to, into stimulus with building apartments, mm-hmm. uh, when real estate was, of course, much more attractive. Yeah. Taxpayers would have made a fortune on it mm-hmm. if it had been essentially market rate units owned by the government. Uh, So taxpayers would have made a fortune, and of course, it would have helped with affordability. Today, the feds are finally pumping a lot of money into rental housing through CMHC. They've really uh, transformed the mission Mm -hmm. uh, from just insuring homeowners' residential loans to starting to pump out serious money uh, for rental housing. Now, Mm -hmm. I think a mistake and a missed opportunity is the province and feds, given the very cheap money the feds are offering private developers, Uh, Those private developers have other investments and are asking for very high rates of return on rental housing relative to interest rates. Mm -hmm. If the government took a direct ownership position, as long as they're throwing 80, 90 percent into these rental housing projects, I think, again, taxpayers have the opportunity with today's very low interest rates, you know, borrowing for 30 years under 2 percent to plow money into property and actually uh, profitably invest. 
so, so why isn't the province or federal government doing that then? Well, again, they are from a debt position, but their okay. view is the way to get rental housing built is to lend for cheap, probably not losing money, but not making sure. money either yeah. uh, to private investors. But you know, again, private investors have alternatives, and uh, the market really wants condos. So it's actually hard for the government to get the money out the door mm-hmm. uh, between condos outbidding for the land uh, and rental developers looking for high returns. If if the government would accept a, a rate of return between what the pension funds want uh, and what would probably uh, be at least break even for taxpayers. Again, I think there's money to be made for future generations borrowing cheap today, investing in real estate, uh, and providing lower income housing. And that sounds crazy for an economist, by the way. The idea that the government can magically make money by accepting a lower rate of return than the private sector, I would usually uh, laugh at. But the government's already putting money in for cheap uh, with these something like 2% loans. So right. as long as you're 80% in, you own the downside. If things go bad enough, these guys are going to default on their loans and the government will lose money. Yeah. So why not go all the way and grab the upside? I think it's almost unambiguously better. Sure. Let's zoom out a, a little bit. Does that basically cover the causes for the unaffordability crisis, in your opinion, before I miss it? Before yeah, I, I mean, I think taxes thing? and zoning. Uh, well, the, the, no. Okay. Nope. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Let's summarize yeah, them yeah. real okay. quick because no, I want to get okay. to solutions that, that's too. That's the policy level. Yeah. I mean, you know, man has made problems, or mankind, or humankind <laughs> has made problems. Uh, but whichever uh, divine force or supernatural force created the mountains and oceans here sure. uh, in Vancouver, and whatever combination of forces made Canada a pretty darn well-governed country, mm-hmm. uh, they really conspired against affordability because the number of places with a favorable climate that can withstand climate change, you know, up to low-lying areas around here and, and sea level change. Yeah. Uh, so, so good climate, well-governed, uh, you know, the government doesn't steal your money. Live. How many yeah. of those are there in the world? There used to be a bunch in California, <laughs> but uh, ever since uh, November 2016, those aren't obviously on the list anymore. Sure. So... Uh, you know, it's a short list, and Vancouver is definitely on it. And yeah. it's hard to build here. Mountains and oceans make it hard to build. So, mm-hmm. you know, government was facing a difficult task, and circumstances have changed, which going back to the beginning, I'm reluctant to get too grumpy about uh, government choices because, you know, government's inherently uh, cautious. So, based on all of that, we've yeah. basically identified taxes, zoning, and Vancouver just being an attractive place to live. With home prices sky high, with rent sky high, Obviously, there has to be coordination between all three levels of government, or certainly two levels of government between the municipalities and the province. Understanding that there's no realistic policy framework that's going to tank home equities, that's going to tank property Mm. values, because that's political suicide. No one would ever pursue something like that. Well, tell that to West Vancouver. I mean, the foreign (laughs) buyer tax, speculation tax, it's it's caused a hit, I think. Sure. Well, fair enough. Yeah. But the NDP doesn't need West Van to win, so there you have it. Putting that aside, based on the policy failures that you've outlined, what should the government's and I say that in plural, municipalities and the province, what should they do to improve housing affordability in Vancouver? What should the 
overall holistic plan be? Well, I think keep up the good work with the shift, the politically feasible shift that's been done to tax empty homes. So if you don't live and work here, you don't rent the place out to somebody who does, mm-hmm. you're now paying higher, you know, significantly higher property tax rates. So I think we've probably squeezed the outside demand largely out of the market. There's the more controversial foreign buyers tax, which certainly has some impact. Mm-hmm. Not my favorite, really unethical uh, grounds that, you know. Why unethical? You know, I- I'm, I'm foreign. You know, I come from a group that has not always done well when people were mad at a certain ethnic group. Uh, And I just think if you can avoid targeting nationality, then tax the thing you don't like as opposed to the nationality. So there's nothing wrong if a Chinese or a Mexican guy wants to buy uh, a property here in Vancouver and rent it to a local. Mm -hmm. That's financing supply. That's like acting like a bank. That's a good thing. So I don't want to punish somebody who's a foreign landlord. On the other hand, if somebody from Toronto wants to buy a -a pied-a-terre uh, in Vancouver and not rent it out to a local, I think that should be taxed. Sure. So I don't think the act of being a Mexican or being Chinese is the problem. I think the problem is uh, buying Vancouver real estate and not using it as a primary residence. But did the foreign buyer's tax apply to residents? So say if you were an American citizen, as you were, yeah. and you are living here, you're working here, and you bought a place, would you have to buy it? Would you have to pay the foreign buyer's tax? Uh, once you're at uh, permanent resident, you don't have to pay. Okay. It. So you know, ex post, I would have. I came here on a work permit. I think my special work permit, I would have been exempt. They they tweaked the rules with foreign buyer. But again, there's nothing wrong with somebody buying a property as a landlord. Suppose a U.S. real estate investment trust wants to build some buildings here. You know, why should a foreign entity that's renting to, to locals, renting's great, being a landlord's great, there, there's no problem. Mm-hmm. And again, why should a Torontonian be exempt if they want to have a vacation home here? Sure. You know, the problem is homes that aren't primary residences. Is- I don't think the problem is foreign people. And again, mm-hmm. here's one way I like to put it. I don't think the foreign buyer's tax is a racist tax. Okay. But if I was a racist, I would love the foreign buyer's tax. <laughs> And that makes me uncomfortable. Sure. No, th- and that's fair. I think you and I are in this on the same page in terms of we want speculative elements to be penalized or disincentivized in the market. Yeah. Basically, we would agree on that, th- th- right? That's correct. Okay, so wait, okay. we were going somewhere. Though. We were. Yeah, we were talking about solutions. Yes. So, so you're saying that on the demand side, you felt like they were doing a good job with the empty homes yes. tax, with you, you're sort of mixed on the foreign buyers tax. You're obviously the architect of the the spec tax, yeah. so you like that tax. I, I, I prefer it, but but the point is, through a variety of measures, in a feasible way, the government has shifted taxation mm-hmm. away from people who work for a living and onto people who own property here, but don't either provide a home for somebody or work for a living here themselves. Sure. One way or the other, and I think that was the the right thing to do. Generally, raising property taxes, cutting income and sales tax is great, mm-hmm. but obviously tough at the ballot box. So sure. I think within the what you mentioned, sort of what can you do with without getting clobbered politically, I think the tax reforms have been great. Okay. Uh, and then look at Large Street. I mean, I think policymakers have really found uh, religion, not everywhere, not in the district of North Van, not in the district of West Van, uh, I think not in White Rock these days. Uh, but a lot of municipal officials have really recognized the need for more housing. And I mean, that mm-hmm. you know, a, a public hearing where all the neighbors hated that project on Large Street. And yet they got it crammed down their throat. I mean, that's real, you know, I don't know if you call it progress, uh, but it, it's a real change. I think the tolerance of density uh, is growing considerably. And, and now here's this. But here- is it progress in terms of how inefficient it is to get just that much of housing through city council? Like it's not, and not that I'm against the project, 
I'm against the process of how long it takes to like go through sure. everything, right? Well, well, look, I mean, what what would a profit maximizer build? This is something I like to say. Suppose you had a bunch of property and you wanted to make the neighborhood as valuable as possible. Oh, valuable. huge towers that I would sell overseas. <laughs> well, it, well, but look at what uh, the Squamish are doing. They've decided to rent it out, but sure. it's huge towers. They're building at a floor space ratio, so about 13 square feet of built area for every square foot of land over a whole mini neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That's what the free market would do. Large Street was two and a half floor space ratio, so I don't know if that is a mm-hmm. fifth of what uh, Sinaqua is. Come on. I mean, the fifth isn't a compromise. Half is a compromise. Yeah. And even to go to a fifth, people were throwing hissy fits. But again, it's progress. So you can't ask for more from the political process than Fair is enough. reasonable. Yeah. So that recognition is great. But let me say this. I think there's a bit of a, two obsessions in terms of adding density where I think we could change a little bit. And this will go mm-hmm. into a bit of detail. One is I'm not sure missing middle is the way to go. So those hmm. Larch Street neighbors were very annoyed to have a moderate density tower there. Yeah. If you took the whole neighborhood and told everybody, hey, you know what? You're going to Sinaqua level. You build whatever you want, 15 FSR. They'd all have to leave the neighborhood, but they would get filthy, stinking rich. I heard everybody at Kitts hmm. uh, was very annoyed by Larch. I haven't heard of a lot of people who were upset by Camby because they got to sell their properties for a fortune mm-hmm. for big new density. So, you know, you allow townhomes in a single-family neighborhood, the neighborhood gets disrupted a bit, parking's worse, et cetera, and the homes aren't worth much more. Whereas you give a real jump in land density uh, and you make the homeowners filthy, stinking rich. They have to leave the neighborhood. But come on, you give somebody 10 million bucks to to let them turn their house into a tower. But maybe not the case in Larch in that area, but then we're talking about things like displacement and... You know, people yeah, losing you know, well, and... I think the displacement is manageable. I really do. Hmm. I mean, suppose you take a, I don't know, uh, I don't think those those low-lying towers I wouldn't do, but mm-hmm. suppose you have a single-family home with a basement suite, yeah. and if the owner sells out to a tower, they get $5 bucks. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it would be more than $5 bucks. But suppose they get $5 bucks for a house that's otherwise worth $2 million. Yeah. They've just made $3 million. Sure. Surely... Surely we can make the basement tenant better off and still have the deal go through. Right? There's <laughs> but, three million right bucks now, on does, the table. But right now, does the tenant have any recourse? Not to... if it's a single family home. If it's right. a rental building, forget about it. They right. have all kinds of rights. But if they if it's a single family, no rights. But hmm. that's easily changed. You know, sure. Burnaby has made big changes. The Corrigan, who I thought was a genius at the time I talked to him, got got bumped out because of Metro Town, because they weren't mm-hmm. sufficiently generous to the Metro Town renters. Uh, in those old buildings that have gotten replaced by towers. But those are 50-story buildings. I mean, there's so much money to compensate the tenants. At Burnaby, they were charging very wisely, in my opinion, charging developers for the right to turn these little rental buildings into towers. Mm-hmm. Why not take enough of that money to make the renters whole? There's more than enough money to do so. So if the rule is, and I think Burnaby's gone there now, if there's mm-hmm. not enough money to, and the density isn't enough, uh, to make the existing tenants better off by giving them enough cash, a new unit in the new building, et cetera. You know, you can make these people better off. It's just a question of money. So what I'm hearing from you right now is you think that the demand side solutions are basically dried up. They've done a good job there. And you want building of more density. And you're even 
what what I find surprising is you're not even talking about the missing middle or gentle density. You're actually in favor of just full-on towers. Well, look, I think missing middle is better than nothing. You know, laneway homes, I think, were an improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no, But we're talking about your solution if it was me, to fix if, the yeah, housing I mean, affordability I, I, crisis. I, 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 you know, I say it provocatively. I think it's, again, my role as an ivory tower guy. People <laughs> love missing middle. Uh, but I, I do think this tower thing is worth thinking about. When I think about myself, mm-hmm. if I had my neighborhood turned to, you know, moderate density, I, if, if it's especially if it has to be rental instead of condo, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I make a little bit of money, but I like my neighborhood and I'm out. So, but you make it towers and I'm filthy, stinking rich. I'd rather leave and be filthy, stinking rich. I mean, how rich do you have to be to prefer your current house to eight million bucks in cash? I mean, sure. pretty darn rich. Yeah. And it also sounds like you are very much pro-market. I am. I think selling density is a really good idea. I don't think when you upzone, you have to give all the goodies to the incumbent landlords. Mm-hmm. You know, one 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 market-oriented solution I like is auctioning density. Suppose we do missing middle and we're going to allow townhomes. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell the development community, tell you what, in all RS single family zones in Vancouver, we're going to allow 3,000 townhomes to be built this year. I don't know the number. Call it 3,000. Mm-hmm. In January, you say anybody who assembles a site and has bought permits to do so, and they're tradable permits, so there's no hold up problems, which we can get into. You know, you buy these permits, you have the right to build townhome uh, in uh, single family for the next one year, two years, three years. You auction off 3,000. You don't leave any money on the table. You know, all the land lift, almost all the land lift, except enough to compensate uh, people for moving out of their homes, goes to the city. Mm-hmm. And the city uh, can then help the homeless. They can help the drug dependent. Uh, so, it, you know, it's a market-oriented solution. It's a very free market idea. Yeah. Uh, but the gains don't have to go to be concentrated in the development community uh, or among uh, incumbent homeowners. I guess my concern is that there are a lot of people that feel that it was an unfettered free market that led to this unaffordability crisis. So it's a hard sell for a lot of people, and myself included, to then turn around and say, okay, well, the market's going to fix it, and we need to, if anything, open it up even more. Well, again, you have to think about whether we've really had a free market or not. I mean, imagine enforcing single-family zoning on the west side. Sure. Okay. That is the very – and you hear people on the west side then say, oh, well, if people can't afford it, they should move to, uh, you know, uh, the Fraser Valley because that's mm-hmm. the free market. That is not the free market. Right. Single-family zoning is socialism for the rich because hmm. single-family – people looking to buy single-family homes should have to be competing with developers of multifamily. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Okay. But you're getting a big discount on that house if you take multifamily off the table. So who benefits? Uh, people rich enough to buy single-family homes on the west side. Believe it or not, $3 million is a big discount off of what you'd have to pay for that property if you were going against somebody who could build uh, townhomes or a tower. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's free market. And if you think about the tax system we've had, which rewards owning property and punishes working for a living, it's not a very market-oriented solution to raising uh, the necessary government revenue with as little pain as possible to the economy. So uh, we've had big deviations. We can talk about rent control, which is a, a complicated topic, but, but we've been far from free market. So to be clear, your solutions, as they probably should, mirror what you identified as the key problem. So you're really talking about shifting the nature of taxation, which sounds like you were advocating for some sort of land value capture. 
because you were saying that the gains of, of property don't necessarily have to go to the developers or yeah. the landlords, right? So is that am I correct there? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a kind of land value taxation. It's only realized on redevelopment, but those land value auctions, I mean, if you think sure. about start, had we started Vancouver that way mm-hmm. and everybody had known how great Vancouver would have been, you know, you could have funded an awful lot of public goods with just, you know, public land sales off the bat. Right, okay. So that's one side of your solution, and then the other side is effectively upzoning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. More homes and uh, shift the tax burden away from people who work towards people who own property. Again, it's not going to magically make Vancouver affordable because it's a great place where everybody wants to live and it's physically hard to build here. Sure. Uh, but I think we can make progress. Can I give you my basic bro solution? I am not an expert in this field, but I want to give you an idea and I want your critique. And you can totally be harsh on it, but... I think this is how a lot of people see the market. So it's a fair assessment of how the public views things. So I would agree that we've had some great demand side measures, but I think we would go even a few steps further to completely disincentivize speculation. And this includes things like banning Airbnb. Mm -hmm. So you would do that. And then I think given the fact that land, capital and labor are finite, we basically would not allow for any or very little construction unless it was rental or non-market. And this would require heavy investment from the federal government and from the province and maybe even the city, including land that's used by all three of these governments. So in my mind, what you're doing is you're creating this dichotomy where you have market real estate, but you suck out the speculative nature of that market. And then you're creating more rental and non-market housing for both low-income and middle-income residents. You don't crash home equities, but you certainly limit the future growth of home prices. So the premise here is that resources are very much limited. So yes, let's totally build a ton of housing, but what we need to catch up on is that non-market social housing side, because I feel like we've almost overbuilt on the market side. And we have to bring in policy from all three levels of government to sort of pull this off, at least in my own mind. (laughs) What would you say to something about that? What am I missing here? What are the false premises or fallacies that I, I have blinders on for? Well, let me start with the part I like. Again, as I mentioned, and, and I'll say why I generally would not favor government direct ownership of housing, social housing, Mm -hmm. as a way to solve an affordability problem. But I think in this special circumstance where the government can borrow at 2%, I think easily the government could buy property and at market rates Mm -hmm. rent it out at, say, uh, 3% of the cost of the land and structures. So if you're borrowing from people at two, renting out at three off the bat, Mm -hmm. and you figure market rents are growing well over 2% a year, you know, you could lose money, but if you're borrowing fixed at 2% for three and going in at a uh, at 2% and uh, essentially getting a dividend of 3% off the bat, I think that's a moneymaker. I okay. do. It's a funny situation, but I think that's a moneymaker potentially for the government. And mm-hmm. then you have government-controlled housing. Now, should the housing that gets built be allocated, I guess what you would be saying is sort of through a lottery, right? Because there's, you know, suppose you said there's an entitlement in Vancouver. Anybody who wants to can move to Vancouver and they have an entitlement to a government managed housing unit at 30% of their income. 
Okay, that's going to have to be rationed. Right, yeah. Because over a very short that time work. horizon, Who would move in? How do you uh, well, that? just about yeah. everybody, yeah. right? Because Vancouver's nicer, I think, than the rest of Canada. Sure. And, but but there's got to be a price attached to that. If there's no price, why would you shiver through the winter in Calgary or Edmonton or uh, Winnipeg when mm-hmm. you could be here in Vancouver guaranteed a house at 30% of your income? So yeah. the problem is, I, I just don't think you could create an entitlement. So instead, mm-hmm. you're going to have lotteries. Right. So essentially, you're going to take housing units that yuppies would pay a million dollars for and say the amount of rent over the life of the unit that an affordability unit commands is Mm $400,000. So for everybody who moves into one of these units, you're looking at like a four or $500,000 subsidy because they get to stay there as long as they want, which is a lot of that that subsidy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a lottery for $500,000 prizes. Mm Mm-hmm. If I told you, hey, you know, we have billions of dollars to spend to help people who are struggling with affordability uh, in life, what we're going to do is instead of giving everybody a small check, we're going to have a lottery for $400,000 prizes. You'd say, what is this, the Hunger Games? What, are you going to make them duke it out and, the, and that's how you decide who wins the lottery? Right. right. You'd tell me I was out of my mind. Okay. Sure. Now I'm going to tell you tell you what. We're going to make it worse uh, because that $600,000, $400,000 prize, they, they can't spend the money how they want. They have to spend it on a housing unit that's newer and in a more prime location than they would choose to house themselves were they to be given a $400,000 cash subsidy. Okay. That's what I would call a violation of the second welfare theorem, right? <laughs> The problem with not having enough money and living in a high price environment isn't, you know, that you haven't been given a home. The problem is you don't have enough money and prices are too expensive. Sure. So I would say upzone, let some guy who wants to pay a million dollars for this unit pay a million dollars, but force the developer to cough up however much you want. It would be, you know, more than, you know, essentially the government by forcing the developer to sell for 400,000 when they could sell it for a million, they're taking 600,000 one way or another from the developer. I'd mm-hmm. say build the market unit, you still get the housing, but now you get $600,000 cash and instead of having a lottery for that $600,000, uh, you know, you uh, distribute that more equitably among the people most in need uh, throughout the region and possibly the world. So, th- sure. th- th- so, so that's what I'm saying. And so even if the government directly owned housing, yeah. I think the mechanism would be rented out for whatever the market will bear and any profits go to the government, which inherently then should be spending money prioritizing uh, the people most in need. It's pretty in hard. In terms of social housing? Like then they, but then they, you'd get in the or same cash. situation. Well, I'd say cash. cash. Yeah, right. You know, and, and if you want to take the cash you're given and, and move to a probably depreciated unit in a worse commute if you're a low income person or if you're mm-hmm. middle income, maybe you buy a just as good of a unit and, you know, essentially you're using the cash to, 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 to rent an equivalent unit. Uh, but that's that that should be up to the beneficiaries. I'm just failing to see and this is on me, not on you, but I'm failing to see how you keep service sector employees here, police, firemen, nurses, people that make this city function. How do you ensure that you're able to keep them here because it's affordable to live here. What's the mechanism yeah. in terms of your your solution that ensures that? Because you you seem to be really throwing it to the market, and I just don't make that connection. Well, of- again, I'm throwing it to the market, which is going to lower prices, right? I mean, if you let people go bananas building condos, okay, a lot of those condos get rented out. Rents are coming down on the market. You're absorbing the top of the market with these new units. And you build enough units, you're taking out all the yuppies who've been pushing up rents. That means the existing units where the service workers live 
uh, are going to get uh, less expensive than they would have otherwise. Okay, and of course, there's rent control, which protects incumbents, and there won't be as much pressure to rent evict uh, once there's all this new housing being built. Moreover, again, you're generating tons of cash. I mean, think about it. I mean, the number is mind-boggling. Suppose in greater Vancouver over 20, 30 years, there's a million units that could get built if zoning were relaxed. I don't mm-hmm. think that's a crazy number. Okay, and suppose those units sell for a million dollars over construction cost. I don't think that's realistic anymore, but it, it was a couple of years ago. Okay, okay, a million times a million—that's a trillion dollars in zoning mm-hmm. that can be sold through an auction-like mechanism to developers. A trillion dollars. Okay, that's a lot of cash to a lot of people that can be given out. And as we have enough public assistance. land to do that. It's not public. It's private. It's private. It's private. But, but then, it's how do we at, get I mean, look, the funds look at for Dunbar. that? Yeah. What is that? What is it? I, I don't understand. I, I think the lack of outrage here, it puzzles me. I mean, you bike through the west side of Vancouver, every fifth house is a tear down to a pimped out new luxury mansion. <laughs> sure. And every single one of those lots is excellent. That would be great rental housing. Yeah. Okay. And the market would build rental housing if they were allowed to build tall enough. But no, no, we have to create this subsidy for rich people so that they can buy single family homes. That are, and it, it, it's a not, I mean, imagine a policy that is economically inefficient and takes affordability from everybody else and hands it to rich people. But would the market build rental housing? I mean, they well, seem- maybe it would build condos. Again, half the condos are going to be rentals. But right now, I mean, they seem to be kind of lobbying the governments for for different types of benefits to build that rental housing, right? Like it, Purpose-built rental, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, the, the government's swimming upstream. And again, I'm not sure they should. I was just doing exercises with this today because municipal governments are thinking of rental-only zoning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a fancy rental, you know, maybe it's worth... 750 a square foot on the private market mm-hmm. whereas a condo goes for a thousand that's 250 bucks a square foot in a tall building that adds up to a lot of money yeah okay and it, it, telling the developer they've got to suck it up and eat 250 dollars a square foot you know you could just let them build a condo which is very likely to get rented out anyway mm-hmm. and the market rate rentals are going to go to yuppies they're not going to poor people but in, and the government could have 250 bucks in cash along with the unit very likely to be rented out. So you just have to be careful. You yeah. know, get a lot of housing units built, generate tons of cash that you can redistribute. I think you really do uh, make more progress that way. Again, look, the key is build more homes. You want to make them uh, social housing, fine. You know, If our sure. biggest problem is, geez, how do we allocate all these new units uh, that we've created by taking exclusionary neighborhoods and opening them up to people who work for a living? Mm-hmm. You know, That's second order. Let's not squabble about that. I think what we should get on the same page as is it's an outrage that we have this crazy socialism for the rich. We have economically inefficient zoning Mm -hmm. that is a tax on working people and a subsidy to people rich enough to buy $3 million houses. It's an outrage. And, you know, the beauty is, look at the Vancouver Council, except for the uh, OK Boomers, you know, I think people are on on the same page now. They're saying, this is crazy. Why are you locking, you know, even affluent yuppies uh, from living on the West Side? So so a couple things that I want to address, and this is stuff that I see online in these debates, right? Yeah. And the first is that when you do upzone an area, there sent there tends to be mass speculation and mass gains on the value of the land, which usually tend to benefit the people who are speculating on the land, which are developers for the most part, right? At least that's what I 
see online. Maybe I'm well. If maybe prices go up, it's the homeowners that make the money, right? The developers are competitive. Sure. Right. Sure. Uh, any, any idiot can be a real estate developer. And many are <laughs> right. So n- n- many are great real estate Fair developers, enough. by the way. Uh, you know. But Regardless, it's private hands, it, right? It's we private. can we Correct. can agree on that. If you don't sell the zoning, that's sure. right. So that's one area where I see criticism about you know heavily densifying certain areas. Right. And again, the other- sell the zoning is the way to answer that. Okay. The, the, but then the other thing that I see is if it is market condos, if yeah. it is market housing, there's the idea that you know Vancouver itself is not just the buyers, it's the entire world. And now you've created almost infinite demand, even if it is being taxed at 10%, 20%, 30%, but you've created this demand for a great safe place to park your money for the reasons that you said earlier in the podcast, yeah. right? And if you are in a country where there is economic insecurity or political insecurity, it seems like a very attractive place to put your money if you're if you have that money. Okay, so I think with the new tax regime it's not happening anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just can't believe somebody's volunteering to pay a 20% foreign buyer tax and then have the privilege of paying, you know, 3% between speculation and empty homes tax every year. But let's suppose they are. Mm-hmm. Okay? Let's suppose we take the 3 million dollar houses on a block in uh, Point Grey or Dunbar or Carisdale, whatever, mm-hmm. and we turn them into each of those lots is I don't know a tenth of Vancouver house. So, you know, so you get I don't know, uh, $10 million, $20 million worth of uh, foreign buyers paying 20% foreign buyer tax. Mm-hmm. So just by replacing that one house, 20% of uh, $20 million is how much? Uh, you know, a lot. <laughs> I think that's $4 bucks cash you've just generated. Sure. And then every year you're getting an income of 3% of $20 million, which I think is something like six hundred k. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you believe these houses aren't getting occupied by locals, which under the current tax regime I think is a fantasy, sure. you're generating so much tax revenue. You're paying for how many people's housing each year just by replacing that one house with condos, even if they sit totally empty, which they're not going to. Right. Right. You're, you, just by replacing that condo, I think you're probably housing, I don't know, 10, 15 people a year. Okay, so that's a win. But then we're also talking about, as we said, but the again, place that's not where... what's going to happen. No, what's no, really going to happen is yeah. the yuppies who are pricing people out of basement suites. Mm-hmm. You know, I know yuppie. I, I know affluent people who say I can't find anything other than a basement suite that I can afford. Okay, mm-hmm. so you got highly compensated lawyers and doctors uh, outbidding uh, mailmen and uh, you know uh, whatever else, teachers, cops. Uh, for basement suites. Get them out of the basement suites. Get them into the fancy units and take the pressure off the existing housing stock. Sure. And again, and generate a whole bunch of money, get rid of sales taxes in Vancouver. You have to break this down for me. And again, I apologize. Uh, no, uh, it's great. You have to break it down for me. How does the government collect the gains in all this development? Okay, let me let me, let me try this again. Okay, so yeah. you got Dunbar where under current zoning, Everything gets torn down, turned into, you know, marble palace, maybe a basement suite, maybe a laneway home. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you say, you know, this year we think there's going to be however many, uh, 200 teardowns. And those teardowns can now be uh, apartments. You know, you can uh, do a four-story apartment. You can do townhomes, something, I'd say tower, but, you know, whatever. You can assemble a bunch of sites. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing those single-family homes, you get to build a lot vertically. Sure. Right? Which is what the market wants. Okay? But- You've got to bid for the right. At the beginning of the year, anybody who wants to play that game 
has to uh, submit a bid for the right to do so. Okay. So you write down in a, a note and you give it to the government yeah. and say, uh, okay, here's how much I'm willing to pay. Mm-hmm. Development's a competitive game. It's pretty cutthroat. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guys driving around these neighborhoods looking to squeeze out nickels. Yeah. Okay. So they're going to pay whatever it's worth. So if the land value goes up by uh, three, five million dollars because you've got the right to build this thing, mm-hmm. you're going to have to pay for that. You're okay. going to have to buy that permit. So all the value then goes to the city. Right. So you're you're basically paying for the permit to build. Yeah, it's like, you're it, auctioning it, yeah, off the permit. That's to right. Build, I mean, and that's think okay. of right. I mean. Essentially, and you think that would generate enough money to? It would generate a fortune. I mean, yeah. I know it. Burnaby's sitting on billions of dollars. I think Vancouver was paying for something like mm-hmm. a third of its city budget uh, with community amenity contributions. I mean, it was a lot of money that's been generated, and it's been generated in a fairly inefficient way, yeah. where it's these one-off negotiations, or they set some price. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we were undercharging on Camby, mm-hmm. and you know how you know. In the NFL or the NHL, if you're not getting called for any penalties, you know you're not hitting hard enough, right? Look at Camby and Oak Street. Every house is sold out. They're all going to get redeveloped. Right. Well, if nobody decided that it was too expensive to buy in, obviously the city was undercharging. Yeah. If you have a pizzeria with the line out the door, you raise the price. Yeah. So that's a lot of money, hmm. right? And, and and write checks to people. Tell the province, hey, here's the money. Uh, get rid of property uh, uh, sales taxes in Vancouver. So you buy stuff, you don't have to pay tax. So what I'm hearing, to be clear in terms of your solutions, upzoning, auctioning off these permits for development, and changing the taxation system. Yeah, that's right. That's, and, and, that's and, and, it? Yeah. And you know, you barely have to make... We've already done the change in taxes. All this permit revenues, that's a lot of money. Yeah. When it you comes know, to you how, want to take oh. some of the units, tell you what, take the money, <laughs> buy some of the units from the developers, hold lotteries yeah. uh, to make affordable I'm, housing I'm for to... teachers and firefighters, great. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to me because when it comes to housing, there are strange bedfellows on different sides of the debate, particularly when it comes to development and how people feel about developers and yeah. this idea of gentrification. And we've seen this axis in Vancouver City mm. Council between Colleen Hardwick, Adrian Carr, and Gene Swanson. Yeah. I think you refer to them as the OK Boomers. I, I did. That was somebody <laughs> you did else. Earlier. I did. Guilty as charged. On the surface, those three... I'm very lonely as an exer. You know, it's the millennials and the boomers at each other's throats, and I just uh, stand on the You're sideline. You're Karen, is what you are. I'm a Karen. I am. Yeah. I'm a male Karen. <laughs> those three counselors, at, on the surface, you'd be like, oh, what would they have in common but they tend to agree on their opposition to certain projects in this city. And then I see in a larger dialogue, which is mostly By online, the way, Adrian Carr's a smart cookie. I just want to say that. Oh, sure. I'm not slagging them. I'm just saying that I they am, do. I but a- I'm not slagging Adrian Carr. <laughs> That's your decision. Thank you for clarifying that. In the larger dialogue, mostly online in terms of what I see, you see advocates who... Similar to you, they see fixed zoning as like the primary solution, right? And then you see advocates who see demand-side measures as the primary solution. And they're very suspicious of supply-side solutions. Deeply suspicious. I don't see why these groups can't coexist, because each group actually contains traditional left versus right people, right? It's not like a left versus right group. It's these two groups that are divided on this one Subject, and they can't seem to find middle ground. Even in you and I discussing and me hearing you out, 
I'm a little hesitant on some of the market supply solutions, yeah. but I think we both do agree that there has to be more construction. There has to be more supply yeah. to a certain, at least to a certain degree. You yeah. might you might give more leeway than, than I do, but we agree on that. I hope you heard me. I think the government buying is not, I would usually think it's crazy. Sure. I think it's less crazy now. Well, and that's an example of you finding middle ground with what there I'm saying, right? That's and not right. that I'm an expert or a policy advocate or anything. But why is there this divide? Why is there such polarization on the on the housing debate? It's a great question. Some of it is generational. I think you know the the Yimby stuff. I think tends to skew younger. Mm-hmm. And uh, the God, I hate those outsiders. You know, I mean, candidly, I see it as a little Trumpian. You know, uh, first instinct blame the outsider. It's just not great. That said, you know, this is a great place for speculation. I think it's a real problem. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think there might be a generational, general openness, closeness type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I don't see any. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, boomers hate the speculation tax. Too. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, boomers if you, think you can't make happy at all. That's yeah. the problem with boomers. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're a homeowner, my God, you've done so well under the current system, yeah. you know, uh, so. Um, but I don't think there is a, an age divide necessarily. I mean, I see young people on. The other side as yeah, well. You're probably very... right. So, okay, so it's not all generational. Yeah. Uh, could be the internet. You pick a side, you mm. find the people who agree with you, you know, you group identify with them, you see somebody say something else, and uh, your team hates the other team. I, I, I don't know. All I can say is, I mean, most markets, you know, if things are expensive, it's probably because you got a limited supply and a lot of demand. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense to tackle the supply side and the demand side. Uh, but uh, I do find there are a very small number of people who find that to be a reasonable perspective. There, there's a lot of people who want to do the one, the other, or neither. Yeah. I wonder how much of it is... Oh, here's one. Oh, go ahead. Oh, here's one. Who are you going to believe, my economic model or your lying eyes? <laughs> so something I hear all the time is, look... What have we seen? A lot of condo construction, rising prices. Yeah. So if anything, building condos causes rising prices, which observationally is not a crazy opinion at all. Mm-hmm. Now, as an economist, I say, no, 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 you don't understand. Demand has been growing, which led prices to increase, and supply has been responding to the price and rent increases triggered by the growing demand. Mm-hmm. That's what we would call an upward sloping supply curve sure. reacting to a shift in demand. But that's a model and a story, and I think many people are inclined to say, yeah, whatever, dude. All I know <laughs> is we built a lot of homes over the last however many years, and uh, rents were growing and prices were growing. Therefore, supply, if anything, causes higher prices. And so what I was going to say is that I think a lot of it is based on optics. And it's similar to what you were saying earlier, where if you bike through a single family home neighborhood all the time, you're looking at that and you're going, this is the issue. If you're in another neighborhood and all you see is no lights no. you know, at night and a lot of Airbnb in your building and you're exposed to that, then you're seeing that side of the issue. Yeah. It still just baffles me why they can't find common ground because well, yeah. i think you need both sides it, that, that would just be rational for me well right? sure i mean suppose you think airbnb 
is a problem. Well, why mm -hmm. is it a problem? It's because it's taking housing units out of the supply that's available for everybody else. Yeah. Well, if rentals. you believe that fewer units causes unaffordability, wouldn't you then think more units causes yes affordability? So, you know, unless you think every single unit's going to be Airbnb, which, by the way, <laughs> wouldn't be crazy. I mean, thank goodness the government's done something because I mm -hmm. think, you know, Airbnb, that type demand has been very resilient. So uh, I, I do think um, addressing that and, you know, speculation and empty homes taxes help and, you know, just taxing and regulating Airbnb too. But yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know why people think, geez, other people are taking up the housing and, and, and leaving it empty. And that's bad. Yeah. And yet, adding new homes won't help. It's a little hard to see how those could both be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the Squamish yeah. Nation's development of 6,000 units on the south end of the Broad Street Bridge. Business in Vancouver had a bit of a sensational headline this past week, or I should actually say uh, last year, because we're yes. in the new year. We are, yes. Happy 2020. <laughs> I've been loving it so far. Right? It's been amazing. We have to guess everything that could happen I know. and then cut out the other things. That 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 meteor, Trump, who Trump would resigned. have thought? Can you <laughs> believe that Trump resigned? Oh, my God. I know. Caught in bed with Putin, literally. <laughs> who knew? Business in Vancouver had a very sensational headline about how this project is exempt from the foreign buyer's tax, yeah. the spec tax, and rent controls. On a personal note, I do believe that our First Nations can develop whatever they want on their land and absolutely maximize profits. Even if that means building market condos and they sell yeah, them all yeah, overseas, yeah. I'm actually fine with that, even though I'm not a yeah, fan of market condos, as we've discussed. What I am curious about, though, is how come the purchasers of housing units in that project, people who are buying the market condo side of that those projects, how come they're exempt from the taxes? I understand the First Nations being exempt from certain taxes and regulations, but how does this work? I am now going to start speaking with a passing familiarity with, you know, Aboriginal land law. Sure. Okay. So this is Aboriginal land. Uh, crown jurisdiction is not the same as it would be elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So provincial law, you know, municipal law, zoning, the reason they can go 50 stories is because the city doesn't have the right to zone that land because it's not, you know, under city control. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would imagine the provincial taxes similarly, they, they just don't have the right to impose their will over that land because of its status as indigenous land. Mm -hmm. To a certain degree, though, right? Like, the laws of Canada still apply there. there I would assume building regulations. In well, terms no, of zoning safety. doesn't. You know, not, zo yeah. not zoning, yeah. but in terms Fire of safety is a good question. Yeah. I don't know how that construction, works. Construction, all, all those other regulations, don't they apply to certain? Like it's not just. I'm now out of my depth on okay. what, on who who would enforce building code there. Okay, well, yeah, but what about the purchasers of that land? Like, if there's a store. Let's just well, say on that yeah, land. Well, they're not don't buying. You have to buy... Well, first of all, they're not buying. They're renting. If they were buying no, condos, no, there... it would be a different story. But I think there were some. Isn't there a market condo portion of that project? Are they are they all rentals? Well, I don't think they can sell because it's indigenous land. They could do ninety nine year ground 99 leases. Year lease. But I don't. Th I don't know if they are going to do any of them. Okay. If they did, you know, oh boy, I don't know. I'm a leaseholder, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you pay foreign buyer tax on a leasehold. I should be careful. I think you do. Okay. So a lot of ambiguity we can we can say. Well, for sure, right? Cuz it it certainly wouldn't be a sale. Yeah. An outright. It wouldn't be a freehold sale. You may, maybe they could do they could which do is, leasehold sales. Which, I think that's what they did to Gillespie is they gave him a leasehold. Right. And it's it's been done before. I live in North Van and on 
Dollarton or yeah. Old Dollarton Road, there's a ton of these leaseholds, and they they trade like they or they sell like they do on the normal market. Yeah, and I don't, but I don't know if they're subject to foreign buyer tax. It's an interesting question, right? Yeah. I want to talk about property taxes as we wrap up here. George Affleck, former Vancouver councillor, I think he's running or trying to run an edgy campaign around this idea of no bullshit cup of coffee. And he's saying that property taxes are too high and the rate increases are too high, which is something that you're sort of advocating for I, I want to well. take a step back. Please. What's a bullshit cup of coffee? Is that to say <laughs> the property taxes are so small it adds up to a bullshit cup of coffee a day? Yes, something like that. It's like, oh, it just comes out to a cup of coffee a day. Not a big deal. I don't That's think what you have saying. to use foul language then, you know? I mean, and I grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn, for goodness sake. I don't mind you, a bad word I'm here and there. I'm just repeating what he said, sir. I, I, know, I do swear I on this podcast, but in this context, I'm just repeating what he said. George, come on. You know, you're a good communicator. I don't tend to agree with you politically, but at least I can give you a good communicator. But he's being edgy. Keep it clean. He's Keep being it clean. edgy, okay, Tom. Boom. Okay, boomer. <laughs> With the dirty to the, words. To the larger point, what, is he though. dice clay? <laughs> hickory dickory dock. That's how you connect with people. That was like, uh, not not Buttigieg. Who is Buttigieg's clone? That was like Beto. Oh, Beto yeah, kept yeah. Sit, dropping F-bombs yeah. to show how edgy and how real he was, yeah. right? Yeah. How'd that work? <laughs> not very well. I hear people saying that you know, the tax rate is very low, but because of home valuations and the mill rate system, the amount that people pay is actually very high. And yeah. Alex Hemingway yeah. and George Affleck actually had this debate on the radio, and I couldn't follow who was telling the truth. Alex Hemingway was saying, actually, property taxes are very low here. Yeah. George Affleck was saying, no, 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 they are crazy high here. You don't know what you're talking about. Are property owners in Vancouver relative to comparable cities? Paying too much or too little in property tax. Okay, so first you're, of all, let's just talk facts. It sounds like you're saying they're paying not yeah. enough, so, right? So, right. So let's talk about facts. First of all, they should pay more based on economics. We should pay less income and sales taxes, more property tax. Fact. Okay, that's economic reality okay. for the reasons we talked about at the beginning of the show, just in terms of economic efficiency. Mm -hmm. The harder it is to add new homes, the more property tax you should have and the less income and sales tax you should have. Okay. That would be economically sensible. Okay, so that's economics. But now let's just talk at the level of facts. Sure. How much do we pay? Now, how should you measure that? As a fraction of property value, we're the lowest in Canada. Sure. You know, and as low as it got, way lower than most places in America. Yeah. You know, you can buy a, a million dollar home in metropolitan New York uh, and be in the tens, twenties, uh, thousands of dollars of taxes. So mm -hmm. we're low in percent of value. Mm -hmm. The right way to measure property taxes, sort of to do an apples and apples comparison, mm -hmm. is not fraction of value, it's fraction of sort of comparable rent. Mm hmm. So, you know, Vancouver's rent to price ratio is lower than other cities. Why? Because people expect prices and rents to grow over time. So you can't both get a lot of dividends and a lot of capital gains. We have a low dividend yield. That means if you measure property taxes as a fraction of rents, 
we're not as off the charts low as other cities. Okay. But we're still low. Okay. We're still low. Now, that ratio gets higher for single-family homes for a couple of reasons. One, if you have an expensive enough single-family home, you pay the school tax. Mm, and right. number two, uh, the way the property transfer tax works, you ought to include a sort of annualized property transfer tax uh, in your total tax burden. And I did a paper for the Canadian Tax Journal that includes all of this in. And, you know, for an expensive enough home, maybe as a fraction of rent, you're high for Canada, but mm -hmm. that would be very unusual. For, you know, the median, which in the city is something like, I don't know, one five-ish, uh, we're below uh, the rest of Canada on dollars paid at the median. So if you take line up all the residences in the city of Vancouver and look at the one in the middle and then do the same thing for Ottawa, uh, Calgary, Toronto, all the other big Canadian cities, maybe with an exception or two, the median guy, the guy in the middle of Vancouver's distribution is going to be lower uh, than the middle of the other city's distribution. Mm -hmm. Okay, so generally speaking, we pay economically ridiculously low rates, uh, and even as a fr as a, in dollar terms, we pay less fraction of rent, what have you, we pay less. Again, you yeah. can find exceptional high-end properties, but, I mean, what godly reason is there to charge anything other than a very high property tax rate on a $20 million house in Vancouver. It's not going anywhere. And it should go somewhere. It shouldn't even be there in the first place. It ought to be a bunch of apartments. So there's no inefficiency to charging it. The guy that owns it's almost certainly filthy, stinking rich. And if they're not, they can defer taxes because they bought the thing a million years ago. So there's no good reason not to have high property taxes on the super high property home value well, there's homes. A, but there's a political reason, right? Because that homeowner now has an incentive to vote for someone who's against what you're suggesting. Yeah, well, Whereas you know, there's not, not getting... a lot of them. I mean, in, 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 unless you're talking donations, owners of $4 million plus homes yeah. don't affect a lot of votes. Fair enough. Now, there is one but marginal they, they district. Can... There is one marginal district, right? You yeah. know, uh, David Eby barely won uh, his riding, and there are a lot of very expensive homes in that riding. So sure. he's taken it on the chin. And those people that we're talking about, the people in those homes, they're quite involved in municipal politics. They're oh, quite involved yeah. in provincial mm -hmm. politics. Well, they can mobilize groups, right? <laughs> there's good news for them. Their assessments are coming way down. Sure. <laughs> so but, the, the, but their taxes ta are still going up, right? No, because no? your property tax is based on uh, you know your property value relative to everybody else's. Right. So with the top of the market getting clobbered and condos doing pretty well, mm. your share of property taxes, if you own a fancy single-family home, is going to go, you know, it's still going to be a lot of money, but it's going to be relative. You know, you're, you're going to see a lower tax bill, and people in cheaper homes are going to see higher tax bills. But again, I mean, it's insanity. You know, uh, I like to say my in-laws, who I love very much, I, I don't love the town they live in uh, as a as as a as a location. It's mm -hmm. got them, so it's great. Sure, but you know, <laughs> that's kind we, of you to say. You know, we've got sort of physically similar homes. Maybe there's a bit nicer, but I mean, the location is not not even remotely comparable. And I think they pay more property tax than I do. I mean, what is that? Like dollar amount? They yeah, pay like more? in dollars, they pay you know more than I do. Oh wow! And it's nuts. I mean, there's no economic reason you could possibly point to why that would be a good idea. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, it's so. But you know, people point to these outliers and they say we have a high, high, high tax bill. We don't now. 
It is not sustainable, in my opinion, with inflation of 2% a year for the city to spend 10% extra year in, year out. Okay. So there's two separate questions. There's should we pay more property taxes relative to other taxes? That is, if we're going to spend more money, Mm. should it come out of property taxes or other stuff? Yeah. Definitely property taxes, no question. Where George Affleck has a point, and, you know, Naughty me for saying that, ever. <laughs> but where in this instance, George Affleck has a point is, you know, it's not sustainable to, to raise spending 8 10% a year forever. So, yeah, you know, fair. one year, there's some crises going on. It's okay. We've mm-hmm. got a new council, new priorities. Uh, but it's not wrong to say, hey, we ought to take a careful look at how much money we spent. I have no problem with that. Sure. Okay. That's so fair. people freaking out about the expenditures and saying, hey, don't be sloppy with money. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But on the question of do we pay excessively high property taxes, no. Uh, are people going to stop wanting to build homes because property taxes go from 24 to 26 basis points? No. Mm-hmm. So you don't like profanity is what I'm hearing. <laughs> you know, I, I used to I used to have the worst uh, potty mouth. Really? Imagine. Oh, my I can't God. Imagine. I grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn. I mean, sure. you know, and, and it was bad words, you know, like you name that under you know, represented group, and I had a bad word for them. Do you have profanity guilt? Is this what's, what no, this is? No, I was a teenager. You know, <laughs> yeah, your okay. frontal lobe isn't fully developed, what have you. Fair enough, yeah. I mean, Mel Brooks, the guy's a genius. I, you know, I, now maybe I can't say that. I listened to Dice Clay when I was in college. I mean, it, right. you know, Howard Stern was like my yeah. uh, my my guy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, it, it has a time and a place. But when you're 15 years old, you know, when you're talking about property taxes and an educated crowd, come on, <laughs> decent company. You have kids. Kids are watching. Learn it, you know, have them speak creatively. Kids are tuned into debates on property taxes. You're absolutely right, Tom. <laughs> no, they're not. And goodness me, listen to rap music. You know, my friend said something so smart in college. He said the same kind of people who like heavy metal like gangster rap because it's yeah. the two kinds of music where you can curse. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know if that's true, but sure, I, I get what you're saying. Who's the guy who had don't curse? It was like Heavy D, I think. From Public Enemy, they curse. No, 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 no. Not, not Chuck D. Heavy D. Oh, Heavy D. I have no idea who that is. I think he had a pretty funny rap called "Don't Curse." Okay. Now then, you look at Fat Joe, and it's the the total opposite. Sure. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's all good. We got on a tangent there. All good. Tom, I have to say, I appreciate your insights. I want to summarize this really quickly. You're basically advocating for a change in the taxation system, so the burden is shifted towards property taxes, right? Absolutely. You're also advocating for upzoning and densification, which includes market solutions. And in all of this, you're also advocating for auctioning off permits for development in order for cities and perhaps the province as well to raise capital. Is this correct? Raise money. And uh, if the goal is to help people struggling with affordability, nothing helps like cash. Is those three things in the home homes and cash are two really sure. helpful things those three things is that a fair summary of your yeah, general yeah, solution? That, that that is my agenda absolutely property tax shift a lot of which has been done mm-hmm. but the low-hanging fruit's been picked the rest will be tougher yeah up zoning we're making progress it's a tough fight as well uh, and then be smart about how you do the up zoning yeah i think that you advocate for policy in good faith I disagree with you, or I'm suspect of a lot of the market-based solutions, but I do understand your logic, and I follow it, and I think you are coming from a a good-faith argument. Mm. To bring it full circle here, is a hyper-rational framework appropriate for conditions that perhaps 
don't make sense that are out of whack with the realities of people who live here. Because what we see in Vancouver almost does define a lot of rationality. And this includes subjective factors like politics itself, right? Like governments are not necessarily functioning purely on ultra-rational frameworks or what's best for everyone to create the optimal utilitarian outcome. And there are also things that just can't be quantified. So when we look at your three-pronged approach mm. here, is it almost too rational? Well, you know, I, I, a couple of things. I mean, one is serious times. You know, you got to be more serious about policy. I mean, look at the U.S. for good. I mean, what a catastrophe. <laughs> what a catastrophe. We got, you know, a climate crisis, uh, opioids, you know, mm -hmm. real problems of how do people make a living uh, with the changes in technology and trade. Mm -hmm. and, and you get Trump. I mean, what a disaster. So you got to be serious. And, you know, you can't indulge yourself in feelingsy <laughs> policy solutions. That said, the speculation mm -hmm. tax, that was, I had, since I got here in 2009, you know, I thought California was off out of whack with property taxes. I couldn't believe it when I got here. I was like, come on, I, you know, what is this? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and But it took, you know, but I always knew, well, what are you going to do? Tell voters, hey, you should pay more property tax? No, good luck. You know, oh, will you pay lower income taxes? Seniors dominate voting and it just kills them. So, <laughs> so no way. So, but then I saw these Kathy Tomlinson and David Eby stuff with, hey, all these empty homes sitting around. And I thought, well, nobody's sympathetic to an empty home. Homeowner, mm -hmm. so tax those guys, you know. So you, it's a feasible step in that direction. So absolutely, with policy, you always have to be entrepreneurial. That's what politicians like George Affleck should be doing: is thinking, what's the right thing to do, and how do I package it in a way that doesn't appeal to people's basest instincts, yeah. but handles the real problems in a way that that they they perceive as helpful. Are those sellable to the masses, the voters? Well, zoning has been. I mean, I got to say, it's been pretty surprising. You Think know, so, I mean, yeah. well, look at Large Street. I mean, the the, the local homeowners hated it, and mm -hmm. yet, uh, you know, what was it? Eight out of eleven councilors uh, voted to approve. And you know, right. I mean, these people have an eye on the next election, and I think the answer is they said, you know what. We're getting to the point where most voters are not affluent single-family homeowners. Sure. You know, there's been this generational shift. There's a bulge of millennials. Absolutely. And I think they're uh, putting their carts in that horse or, you know, whatever, eggs yeah. in that basket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to leave you with the final word before you, you tell me how people can follow you. When we are talking about housing, when we're talking about unaffordability here, aside from your maybe not aside, but maybe thinking differently in terms of your three-pronged approach of what should change on a policy level. What should people really think about to try to understand some of these issues better than just what they're seeing in their neighborhoods? And we, as we discussed, what you see in your neighborhood really does affect what you think the, the key issues are. So what should, be, what should people be doing to educate themselves or understand the issues on a deeper level? You aside know, from debating you on Vancouver's no, falling. No, no, you know... There's a lot of bad economics out there, Lord knows. But, you mm -hmm. know, learn some economics. Mm -hmm. You know, learn some finance. Yeah, there's a great textbook. Uh, it's in an American context, Brueggemann and Fisher, Real Estate, Finance, and Investments. If you ever can't sleep, <laughs> you know, I, I shouldn't say this, but I've heard there's version 14 uh, is free online with a PDF. Oh, okay. So that's real estate finance, just institutional. How do you count up money? You know, think about future value. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, boy, uh, Google Ariel Rubinstein, what a great, fun economist he is. But, you know, probably Khan Academy has a zillion good uh, microeconomics lecture notes. You know, uh, become economically literate and statistically literate, you know. Sure. Uh, I, it, you know, I, I think that's it. You know, be mathematical, be precise, force yourself to be rigorous with the way you think. You know, I, I, w- with online, I do think the online debate helps and like engage in good faith debate. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody has a good point, acknowledge it, you know, see if see how your beliefs have to be updated when you learn new facts. I mm-hmm. think there's there is a lot of great online discussion here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the sharks and the jets, you know, that that doesn't cut it. You got to you got to acknowledge point acknowledge when you're wrong, right? I mean, if you think about it, okay. So here I am, Joe Blow, uh, sitting around or I'm I'm an economist and I'm talking about facts with some guy who invests for a living in Vancouver real estate. I could assume the guy's an idiot and knows nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I could assume, huh, this guy has some expertise obviously. I I'm in a position to learn from this guy. So mm-hmm. if I disagree with him on something that this guy does for a living, you know, just statistically, I'm probably wrong. Not because this guy disagrees with me, he's definitely a jerk who's been bribed or is stupid or, you know, whatever, right? <laughs> but he has different interests, perhaps. Maybe. But, yeah. you know, just statistically, one of you guys is wrong. So, yeah. you know, I think the assumption that I'm right and you're wrong is, a, you know, not a great way to educate yourself. Sure. So, you enough. know, good faith dialogue, I think, would be great. Yeah, I I agree with you there. Tom, this was a pleasure. I appreciate you speaking so openly and candidly about housing policy. This is really complicated stuff, but in the way that you're able to break things down and even repeat yourself when I lose it a little bit. Learn three facts and start yelling. (laughs) That's that's the game plan? That's the game. That was in Washington. I didn't make that up. Well, thank you for for discussing with me and for kicking off 2020 on This is Van Color. How do people find you? How do they follow you? How do they debate you online? Well, read my papers on SSRN.com. I'm going to try and uh, cut back on the uh, online presence, but <laughs> I'm also going to cut back on internet speed chess and, uh, sure. and, and unhealthy habits, too. So uh, I'm on Twitter at Tom Davidoff. Okay. And where do they read your articles, you just said? SSRN.com, or just okay. Google me. You'll find my webpage. There you go. Blogs.ubc.ca slash Davidoff. See, you have them already. You have all the URLs ready. you got to be ready to dispense those. At 1-800-MIX-A-LOT, right, or whatever <laughs> Joe Biden said. Thank you, Tom. I will see you at David Eby's next birthday. I hope so. (laughs) People, he is the director for the UBC Center of Urban Economics and Real Estate at the Sauter School of Business. He is Tom Davidoff, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.